Good morning, Woodland Hills community and family, wherever you are. If, if you are listening right, home, right now in your own home or living room or car or kitchen or wherever you are, or if it's a few hours later on the podcast, welcome. And I am so honored to be among you today. Woodland Hills Community Church feels like family. This is my first time here in this space, but I have, like many of you, I have been part of the family as a pod for years. And I have to tell you that your ministry, through the podcast and the live stream, has blessed me immensely. And those of you who gather here, I'm told it's oftentimes the, the, the Sunday morning services, I, I can hear the hooping and hollering in the background. And it blesses me so much and I always think, man, I wanna be there with them and I wanna be hooping and hollering. And I just want to thank you so much for your generosity and for the ways that you as, as a church community, as a kingdom community, reflects the goodness of God. And as a fellow parishioner, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so I'm so thrilled to be here in what already feels like family and thrilled to dig in with you as we continue this series at Woodland Hills and the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' proclamation that we are light and we are salt. Before we do that, let's pause again and pray. Living Lord, we thank you so much that you are a God that comes over and over and over again. You pour out your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love to us abundantly. And so Lord, we pray that in these next few moments that our hearts would be malleable, that, that our minds would be open, that you would give us ears to hear, that our hearts would be ground ready to receive your word to us. And so God, we ask that you would speak, that you would anoint the ears of all who hear, anoint the hearts of all who receive, anoint the minds of all who seek to understand, anoint the eyes of those who desire to see the goodness of your kingdom. And so we pray that in these next few moments, that you would have your way. God, we love you. We praise you. You are so good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you do have your Bibles near you, I know so many of you use cell phones or apps or computers, and and some of you might even follow along on the screen. Whatever it is in which you like to hear or read and receive the scripture, go ahead and grab that, because we are gonna look at Matthew's Gospel Um, where I'm told you're gonna be over the next several months, possibly longer a year. I know how things go around here, but it's gonna be good, it's gonna be awesome, it's gonna be rich, so open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter five, verses 13 through 16. We're gonna hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This, dear ones, is the word of the Lord. Let us be thankful today. So in this credible passage of scripture, this awesome passage of scripture, known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stands up on a mount and he begins to teach this kingdom vision of what it looks like to be a part of God's very good and radiant kingdom. And as my friend Scott McKnight often says, these passages are severe. When reading the Sermon on the Mount, there there are likely to be moments where we're going to squirm a little bit. We're gonna feel uncomfortable. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presses God's people to to do radical and subversive things, things that are completely the antithesis of the world. He tells us to forgive our enemies, love them, pray for those who persecute you, to turn the other cheek. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just nice little pithy sayings, but but Jesus' words are, are meant to be taken seriously. Severe as, as they may seem. And yes, it is, it is born out of God's grace for sure to live it, to be empowered by the Spirit, absolutely, but Jesus calls us to live it. And so when we arrive to this text and the, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus proclaims that you are light, that you are salt, as, as, as your pastor last week said, that this is, this is in many ways kind of the pinnacle. It's, it's the center of all that Jesus has to say. And you see, ultimately what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is he climbs up on the mount. He's, he's in a lot of ways, he's, he's proclaiming to be the ultimate authority. That what he says and the way he lives ought to be informing for how we live as God's kingdom people. That Jesus' words are to be lived out and obeyed. So in this passage, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, oftentimes I, I think we, we look at these as, as nice, lovely sayings, and then we put them on our bumper stickers, or, or, or we put them on magnets in our fridge, or we frame them in our houses, because it is a beautiful, awesome text. And I think oftentimes, sometimes we look at this, and we, we think, well, I should sometimes do good deeds. I want to be a do-gooder in this world. Another thing to check off the box. And for sure, oftentimes the ways that that people in in my tribe and, and evangelicals talk about the gospel, we frame it as, well, God created, then the fall happened, and then we hit the gas pedal and we go all the way to the cross and redemption, we skip over the entire story of God and so then when we read passages like salt and light, we think, well, I've got my ticket into heaven and as a result, I ought to do good things in this world. And for sure, salt and light, we even see Jesus use the words good deeds, let your good deeds be known. There is a component of good deeds But when we limit it to good deeds for good deeds sake, we are actually missing out on crucial ingredients of actually the proclamation of what Jesus is saying here. And actually what Jesus is saying here, he's standing upon an entire narrative of God's story, 
of covenants, of prophets, of priests, of kings, of, of, of all these, these amazing promises. Jesus is standing on a rich history as the fulfillment, as the pinnacle and the climax of this history, and he stands up and he proclaims something that is completely in context of every listener. They would have understand that, that Jesus was building upon something spectacular, that it wasn't just, hey, go out and do good deeds. You see, this is, this is couched within a rich and awesome narrative. You see, it's so common for us to leave out crucial ingredients when we read stories like this, when we read passages of scripture like this. You see, it's like this. I am a wannabe baker. I, I, I look at Pinterest a lot. And I see all these just magnificent creations of, of Elmo cupcakes and, and, and these beautiful pies and these beautiful cinnamon rolls. And every time I see them, I think, I could do that. And I'll, I'll get into the kitchen and I'll get to baking. My husband always walks in and he says, are you sure you wanna do this? Because he knows that it always ends up being a disaster. Uh, several months ago, I had the bright idea to cook bacon on a flat pan in the stove. Don't ever do that because the grease goes into the bottom and it will catch your stove on fire. It will catch your oven on fire. So I often get in trouble in the kitchen. And one of my problems with baking is it's so precise. And I don't always like to be precise. Like if it says a cup of flour, I'm like, oh, well, here's about a cup of flour. But actually, they mean they want an exact cup of flour. And so... I was trying to make a peppermint cake one time. It was beautiful, the picture. It was full of peppermints and white frosting and just many different layers. And I decided that I was, I was gonna make this. And I was gonna make sure just like the picture. Well, I got to baking and, and I saw that it was calling for baking soda. And I looked in my cabinet. We didn't have baking soda, but we had baking powder. And I thought, how different can these ingredients really actually be? So I decided, well, I don't want baking soda, so I'll use baking powder instead. I ended up mixing uh, several other ingredients, and I, I put this cake into the oven, and it came out as flat as a pancake. And then when I went to make the frosting, I, I don't know what went wrong, but it wasn't white, it was brown. And so I decided to just go with it, and I put the frosting on top of the cake, and I kid you not, it looked exactly like biscuits and gravy exactly like a, uh, just this biscuit, this crusty biscuit with, with brown gravy on top. What went wrong? I, I left out crucial ingredients to the recipe. You see, sometimes I think we, we are settling. We are settling and we're leaving out crucial ingredients and we're missing out on the full grand narrative of what God is doing. And when we read passages in the Sermon on the Mount and we leave out crucial ingredients, my goodness, we are missing out on this awesome redemptive story of what God has been doing down throughout history and that when we arrived to Jesus that it wasn't just this, oh, thank goodness, finally something happened, but the story had actually been moving at the, in that direction and it had actually just arrived to the person and Jesus is the the climax, the finality, the center of the entire story. And so to understand, and just to add a little bit more color to Jesus' proclamation here, we're gonna dial it back and we're gonna look at a few other ingredients to the story of what God is doing throughout history, of what God is doing. And so we're gonna look at the beginning. I know that your pastor Greg has talked so much about the beginning uh, so many great and rich messages out of the covenants and, and Genesis. And we know that in the beginning, God created the heavens. God created this very good, good, beautiful, glorious. When God, when God spoke, there was light and, and creation just roared in joy. And there was this incredible 
harmony. There was a harmony between God and God's people. There was a harmony between, between man and woman. There was a harmony between, between God's people and, and creation. There was just this incredible blessing. Well, eventually we know that that harmony was disrupted. And when we go on to turn the pages and we see that disruption of the harmony, we see that that beautiful harmony that once existed between man and woman, there begins to be strife. Between humanity and creation, there's strife. We see that today, don't we? Between humanity and God, and we see this rebellious, we see this rebellious spirit that wasn't once there. And if we are going to read the Bible for the first time with fresh eyes, Genesis chapter one through 11, we see that, that, that the world is absolutely fraught with difficulty. There's a disharmony, there's a dishumanity, humani- there's, a, there's a disharmony, there's a disunity. We see, we see the, the Bible's first murder right out of the gate. We see rebellion, terrible decisions, and we wonder, what is God going to do? And the gospel of my youth was, we wonder what God's gonna do, so God gave us Jesus. And we skip all over all the good stuff. And we're missing out that actually God moves in by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11. God begins to declare covenants and promise the restoration of creation. So then by the time we arrive to Genesis chapter 11 and 12, God calls this nomad by the name of Abram. And God declares to him that that Abram is going to be a part of something spectacular, that that God moves in with the plan and God declares God's plan immediately. Now, some of you may may know about Abram or Abraham. If, If you were here in this room, I would make you all stand up with me and we would go, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham and I am one of them, but you're not. So maybe, maybe you're doing it right now at home, and I hope you are. In fact, I'm picturing you doing it right there with me because Father Abraham is central to what God is doing, to God's plan of redemption. So God calls Abram, and he makes a promise. We're gonna look at Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. It will be on the screens. It says this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. Now, notice, God disrupts this man's life, says, leave everything you've ever known, and I'm gonna take you to a new land. And then God declares the purpose behind this. Says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God calls Abram to go, he disrupts his life, and says go, and I'm going to do something spectacular in and through you. In fact, this this spectacular thing that I'm going to do in and through you is, is gonna be a part of God's big plan of redemption, and we see the major theme, blessing. We see this word five different times. Blessed, blessing, uh, bless. God promises that this blessing, this, remember in the beginning we talked about this harmonious relationship, that the blessing of God was upon God's people in the beginning. 
that there was, there was a harmony, there was a blessing between God and Adam and Eve, there was a blessing between Adam and Eve and one another in their relationship, there was, there was this harmony between, between uh, Adam and Eve and all of creation, this just incredible, beautiful harmony. We, we also call this shalom. And, and we see this and then we see this disrupted and so we wonder what is God going to do and God calls this nomad by the name of Abram and he says, you're gonna be blessed. And not only that, but what I'm going to do through you and your family, they're gonna be blessed. And we're gonna begin to restore this shalom and this blessing and this harmony. And so we see that this is, continues to be this common theme throughout the Old Testament scripture. We see God moving and pouring out God's abundant grace and mercy and covenant and working to restore this blessing. And then we see God's people pulling away from this blessing and this harmony and then God moving back and in. So we see this just back and forth of of restoring of blessing and God's people turning away. And God is constantly pouring out God's redemptive grace and mercy to, to restore what has been lost. And so God proposes to Abram that he would not only bless his family, that he would make him to a great nation, but actually others on the outside would also be blessed. And we're gonna talk about that in just a moment. But there's a problem. In order for this to happen, Abram must not only leave everything he knows, but his life is going to be disrupted over and over again. His wife, Sarai, later known as Sarah, is barren, she cannot have children. And, and yet, Abraham, he, he receives this vision, he hears the Lord, and he takes this crazy, awesome leap of faith, and they pack up everything, and they go believing that God is going to, to bless them, and that they are going to have children. But then we, we see this actually man who, yes, as we remember, as Hebrews 11 even tells us, that he was full of faith, he was also full of a whole lot of doubt. He wasn't sure. He, he took steps forward and he doubted a lot. And, and so, so he and his wife came up with this plan. They said, you know what, we're getting old. I mean, by this point, the, the Bible tells us that Abram's 99 years old. Having a child sounded absolutely impossible. He was old, his wife was old, and they really began to doubt. I think I would. I would doubt too. And, and so they, they, they decide that they are going to take matters into their own hands, and, and, and he comes to the Lord and he says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? He's thinking, I'm 99 years old. Who's gonna inherit my estate? Who's, this land that you are promising me, who's gonna inherit it? And he says, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household is going to be my heir. Now we know that heir is the servant Hagar, which is a profound story. And actually I love preaching about Hagar and we just see God's grace and the God who sees Hagar. But, but they try to take matters into their own hands and, and they, they approach Hagar to have their son. Their son and, and God says, you know what, no, 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 no. This man, this, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside in this incredible moment. I don't know if you've ever been to like a dark sky territory or land. I was just there in, in the Sedona Desert not too long ago and I saw a dark sky. And when you're in a dark sky area, you can see 
every star. That it is just glorious. I mean, it looks like diamonds. It looks like God just, just sprayed diamonds all over the sky and they just twinkle and glow. And, and you're just looking at thinking, wow, those are planets somewhere off in the universe. And God created all of this. And so God took Abram, and I'm sure it was a dark sky, then he takes him outside and he says, look up. Look up. And he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you count them. If you can count them, of course he can't count them. And he says, then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and credited to him as righteousness. And so then from out of that, we see just this, this covenant ceremony, God's, uh, God's covenant, that God is going to restore the earth, that, that God is, is going to bless the world through Abram. God continues to confirm and, and deepen and expand this covenant all throughout scripture, and we see this happen again, as, as we see this through the act of circumcision. Circumcision then became an outward symbol of, of what it meant to be in God's covenant community. It was kind of a, a symbol that you were in, that you were part of this covenant community. It was, it was an outward symbol. And so then from that point on, children who were eight days old would go through this act of circumcision to say, we are part of this family. This nation, this holy people, these people who are going to be blessed, that is us. And then, and then from out of there, from out of there, they, they go through another covenant. Actually, I mixed these up. They, they, from, they, they go through a covenant ceremony before this. After, after Abram, after God takes him to the stars and says, look at the stars, God confirms this covenant actually through, through another really grotesque ceremony. God says to Abram, he says, I want, you to, I want you to find a cow, I want you to find some goats and some birds. And this is what we're gonna do. I want you to cut them in half, opposite of one another. So, so Abram goes and he, he takes, he takes the, the calf, he, he takes the goats and the birds, and he cuts all of them in half except for the birds. And he places, and you can imagine, this is just, I don't even think I could stomach this scene. Like when I pass up roadkill, I just get this like feeling, like it just, it's, it's gross. It's grotesque. And again, if you're reading this with just the naked, fresh eye for the first time ever, you're thinking, what on earth, this is insane. If we did this here at Woodland Hills, if we started cutting animals up opposite of one another, you bet you'd make the news and you might lose like over half of the congregation because it's grotesque, it's outrageous. But to those who understood ancient Near Eastern culture, that would have been very familiar. See, it would have been really common if you would have come together in some sort of covenant. I'm going to promise you something in return. You're going to promise me something. They, what they would do is they would cut these animals in half and they would hold hands or they would tie their hands together and they would walk through at the same time and they would say, if I do not keep up my end of the bargain, may I die a terrible, grotesque death like these animals. If I don't keep up, may I die a grotesque, terrible death like these animals. So what happens is, at sunset, Abram falls asleep, and the Lord begins to speak to him and assure him over and over again. As the Lord is speaking to him, actually Abram doesn't walk through the animal halves, but instead, God does, with this smoking pot and this torch. 
And so in essence, what's happening here, God is saying, if I betray my agreement, may I die a horrible death, God solemnly swears death upon himself. Which shows us how deathly serious God is about restoring this harmonious blessing and shalom that has been disrupted. How, God, how deathly serious God is about mercy, how deathly serious God is about grace, how deathly serious God is about redemption and harmony and restoring God's people in this world. And God is, is, is saying, God is, God is saying, I'm going to keep this promise and I'm, I'm swearing death upon myself if I don't keep up my promise. And so then again, when, when Abram's 99 years old, this, 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 this uh, covenant of circumcision took place after that. Again, a declaration of being in God's covenant community. So what's happening here is God is making these promises. And God is then calling Abram to, to obey. That there comes a responsibility. And so it's important for us to remember that throughout the whole story of God, in particular in the Old Testament, that God already redeemed God's people. We see this with Moses and and we see this down throughout the story. See, oftentimes when we read the Old Testament, we think, well, they're just trying to earn their salvation. That's actually not the case. God saved them. God rescued them. God is redeeming them. God is rescuing them. And then God calls them to obey out of that. And so God promises that no matter what, there's going to be restoration, that there's going to be blessing. And all of this is part of this this major hope that the people of God who, who out of living in obedience and living in the grace of God, that as they live in this harmony with, with God, as they live in this harmony with one another, as they live in this harmony with all of creation, this blessing, this, this shalom state, that, that they would be a countercultural community. That the world would actually look at them and it would be so different because the rest of the world, there's this disharmony, they're living in disruption, they're living in, in rebellion to God, they're living in rebellion to one another, they're living in rebellion of all of creation. And so Sorry, I turned off my mic. And so God's people then would be living in such a way that the world would actually stop. And they'd look. It would be in such stark contrast. It'd be so different that they'd say, is that what your God is like? Is that what Yahweh is like? Is that the character? Because it's so... I want to be a part of that. Several years ago, well over a decade, when my husband and I first got married, we lived in upstate New York, just near the Catskill Mountains. And I used to love to go walk in the evening. And I remember one particular evening, I was, I was out walking, and it was just a crisp, beautiful night. And I passed up this home that was, was made of stone and it had this stone chimney with, this, with just the smoke like billowing off into the sky. And behind it was the backdrop of, of a setting sun. And it was full of beautiful hues of yellow and orange and, and blue and purple and red and all these absolutely magnificent colors. And then the house was just glowing warm. And as I walked by, I thought, oh, it's such a beautiful house. But then I heard people inside 
And what I heard sounded so joyful. What I heard sounded so beautiful. What I heard sounded so magnificent. There was, there was laughing. You could tell it was a really large family gathered around a table. I saw two parents. I saw a large family of children and they were so delighted and so happy to be together. They were passing the plates and as I walked by, I thought, well, I don't wanna, I, I just wanna know what's going on in there. I don't wanna look, but at the same time, I just could get such a really great view from the bushes. No, I didn't really do that. I actually just, I just walked by and I, I, I glanced in for a moment from afar, not awkwardly, you know, kind of just turning my eyes. And what I saw, when I looked at this family in there, it was so beautiful and radiant. And I, I wasn't sure if I, I was cut out to be a mom. I, I had kind of a mixed up idea of what family should be like, kind of a dysfunctional idea. And as I looked, I thought, hey, that's what family can be like. And then I, I want that. You see, in the same way what God is doing in the beginning here is, is God is creating a people, a holy and radiant people that in the ways that they do life with one another and the ways that they live in this harmonious condition and the ways that they are in harmony with one another in the world, the world would stop and they would peer within the windows of the people of God and say, oh, that's so different. That's so beautiful. That's, if that's what God's like. And they would then experience, they would taste and when they would see the blessings of God. So God makes these promises, and as we make our way through the rest of the Old Testament narrative, we see this back and forth story of God over and over expanding God's covenants, God responding to God's people, God pouring out God's grace, and we see then God's people turning their backs, forgetting, hardening their hearts, and what does God do? God pursues, God moves in, God calls, God beckons, return, return, God speaks through the prophets. And we see this continuation of God's story. And so by the time we reach the Gospel of Matthew, we have this really long, boring, at first glance, genealogy of all these people. And we think, what's going on here? But it actually communicates that this story is connected. It's, there's a cohesion. I love the way N.T. Wright often talks about the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. N.T. Wright says, oftentimes we think about it as a vehicle in the Old Testament that was kind of working, it was clunky, and, and eventually by the time we get to the New Testament, man, that, that vehicle just broke down, it was no good. And so everybody got out of the, the old vehicle and said, well, what now, it's broken, we're, we're on the side of the road, what are we gonna do? And then God provides a new vehicle, oh, thank goodness, and they leave that one behind. But the way N.T. Wright talks about it, he says, no, 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 this vehicle is a good vehicle. This vehicle is fit for the long haul. This vehicle is moving and calling God's people into something radiant and beautiful, and by the time we arrive to this incredible nativity, by the time we arrive to this incredible story, the vehicle didn't break down, the vehicle just arrived to its destination. And not only did the vehicle just arrive to the destination, 
but the destination, the climax of the story, King Jesus displays to a weary and chaotic world, displays to a world full of misery, displays to a world full of squalor and disruption and disharmony, and Jesus begins to proclaim a radical new way. Jesus begins to show everyone what this blessed condition looks like. Jesus begins to fulfill this promise. Jesus begins to live out this promise. And then what we see is we see this come to a complete and total climax in King Jesus and we see just how deathly serious, deathly serious God is about restoring this blessing, this renewal in this world. In a world full of chaos and darkness, in comes this king, fully human and fully divine, who we know as Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the one whom we praise on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, who we call the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Alpha and the Omega, the bright and morning star, the vine, the branch, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus, the King of Kings, the new Israel, the second Adam, the true King, the Prince of Peace, the prophet and priest, and the fulfillment of all of history. We see this King meet his death on a cross, on a very dark, dark, dark moment, grotesque moment, over 2,000 years ago. When all of this chaos and disruption and sin and darkness and war and murder in a moment, this king meets his death on a cross and this present evil age of this disharmony, this disharmony is now disrupted and God does something spectacular that on that death and on that cross, we then are included on God's grand rescue operation. As this pre present evil age comes to an end, as we see this king then raised to, to new life, we see this king resurrected and then ascends to the throne and then something spectacular happens. Once it was ethnic Israel who was included in the people of God who were in this blessed condition and now the floodgates are open and it's no longer ethnic Israel but but the hierarchy, is, as your pastor often talks about, is then flattened. And it's Jew and Greek and Gentile. It's slave and free. It's, it's male and female. It's, it's rich and poor. It's, it's leader and servant. All are included at one even table. And welcome into this kingdom of God and a new world order is established and a recreation of God's people is established. And, and the good news about all of this is that God was deathly, God is deathly serious about keeping God's promises. God is deathly serious about restoring all of creation. You see, we are the, we are the stars. Those beautiful stars that God promises Abram that we would live in a, a blessed condition. We are now standing on those promises. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, therefore, if anyone is Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. 
We are the new creation of, of Jew and Gentile, of Greek and, and slave and free and male and female. We are now included in this promise as the stars into the sky to be this radically countercultural community that, that mediates God's blessing in this world, that mediates God's goodness in this world, that mediates God's light in this world for a weary world to see. Peter tells us the same in First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, when he says, but now... You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's talking about us here. He says, once you were not a people, that's me, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's us. So when Jesus stands up on the Sermon on the Mount then, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus standing on this history of this promise that began that there would be a people who would be blessed, that they would experience the blessings of God, that they would experience the, the harmony and the blessings with one another, that they would experience the harmony and blessings. And this is why we cannot limit it to just doing a good thing. Being salt and light is, is not just, well, I paid it forward in the Starbucks line today and I feel really good about that. It's more than that. But when Jesus says that, he was saying, you as a people, we're going to live in such a way that the world takes notice. It's, it's not just an every once in a while thing, but it's in the ways that we do life together. It's in the ways that, that, that we worship together. It's this unique and very distinct way of talking and being and doing, a way that looks like Jesus. We take our cues from Jesus, the King of Kings and the ultimate radiant one, and the ways that we do our life together, we are moving in, in a very distinct and a peculiar and often odd direction to the world. It, it might make their heads tilt a little, but we live in such a way that even still they say, is that what Jesus is like? They peer within the windows of the church. They say, well, that's what Jesus is like. And I would like to get to know your Jesus. When Jesus is saying you are the light of the world, he's calling us to a witness, to a reality, to an alternative reality in this world. You see, we have been given the blessings and the grace of God because of the faithfulness of what God has done in King Jesus. And so being salt and light is a response to God's grace and it's also a responsibility and a call to obedience. Jesus isn't saying if you wanna be salt and light, he's saying you are salt and light and do it and live it. And then throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us what it looks like. God initiates, God moves in, God offers God's grace, and then God asks something out of us, and then out of this is out of a middle, in the middle of a chaotic world, world of squalor and misery and decay and war and disruption and murder, that, that the way that we are living, that our deeds would display, we would be putting on full display in a beautiful, magnificent way how good and awesome God is, and that the world would take notice. 
as we mediate God's love, as we mediate God's goodness, as we mediate God's holiness, as we mediate God's life in this world. And now then, the symbol of what it means to be part of this covenant community is a new kind of circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, a circumcision of the heart. And you see, there's a stark contrast, isn't there? You see, the ways of the world is very, gonna be very different than the salt and light community. The ways of the world, they, they pride themselves on many things, many things. But the ways of the salt and light community, they choose the way of humility. And, and the ways of the world, they declare we sit on the throne, we are in control, but the ways of the salt and light community declares he sits on the throne. You see, the ways of the world declares we need to take more interest in me, my, myself, and, and it's all about me. The ways of the salt and light community says, it's all about Jesus and it's all about my neighbor. It's about those in the margins and it's, it's about the invisible, them first. And you see, the ways of the world is all about selfish ambition and vain conceit. But the ways of the salt and light community is about empowering others. You first. You see, it's I am better than others. No, 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 you first. Independence, dependence on God. I can do it. No, God can do it. Who's going to help me? It's all about me. How can I help? How can I serve? How can I lay down my life? A life of hoarding, a life of generosity. What's best for me? What's best for God in God's kingdom? My rights. I have rights, don't you know? No, it's bigger than that. It's, it's an alternative view, it's a, just a different way of thinking, but we gotta protect my privilege. No, actually, we're going to give up our privilege and we're going to lay it down. But what about my personal freedom? No, we're gonna, we're gonna lay it down, we're gonna live differently, but, but I am great, don't you know? Yes, you are great, and Jesus is great, but I need more power. I need to collude more with power to get our way and to bless the world, we need to have more power. But Jesus says no. Empty yourself, lay down your life, but, but prestige and success. No, 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 humility, humility. Fight for what I want. No, no, meekness, gentleness. Lord over, no, 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 no. Come alongside of, actually, power under, as your, your pastor often says. Pointing fingers, you did it, you're the problem. Actually, let's figure out a way of, of reconciliation. Divide over politics, lose friendships and family, no, find an alternative way of healing. I want you to know how much is at stake right now. As a pastor, I'm profoundly burdened for the church in North America and what I'm seeing unfolding. But I continue to be a prisoner of hope because actually when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think Jesus was messing around. I don't think Jesus said, well, I'm gonna tell you to live this, but good luck. I actually believe that Jesus believes in us. I believe that Jesus believes in you, that Jesus believes in me, that Jesus believes in Woodland Hills Church. That God has given us God's spirit and God's presence. But at the same time, my heart is, is so burdened because I think oftentimes the world is, is peering within the windows of the church. They're saying, Wow, they, 
That's a dysfunctional family. I don't think I'm interested in that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go check out something else. And I, I am concerned about the witness here. Yes, we are in a, a missional crisis and we are in a formational crisis. And a lot of it has to do with our witness. How can we be missional when our witness seems dysfunctional? He said, I had the incredible opportunity to pastor a church over the last four and a half years in Pasadena, California. Oh, it's a dream. In so many ways. My heart is grieving. I, I miss them terribly. As Greg shared, we moved back to care for my family. That was a hard decision. There is just a group of people there that I, they often call the faithful remnant. Oh, they're radiant. They look like Jesus. And then I also want to tell you that it was really hard at the same time. It was painful. You see, I was the first female pastor there, actually the first female pastor to ever pastor a larger church within our denomination. It was a flagship church, a historic church. And I gotta tell you, the day that I was installed, there was just a sense of hope among all of us. That, ah, the trajectory is changing. God is doing a new thing. There's new wineskins. And within seven days, somewhere between 500 and 600 people walked out the door of the church because they just couldn't do a female pastor. And then as we went on throughout the summer, I stepped into an election year. Let me tell you, pastoring through election cycles is, it's hell. It's really hard. It's really hard. And I know that, that you guys have been through it here as well. Pastors are going through it. But my very first season, series that I did was called The Politics of Jesus. And see, the thing you gotta understand is oftentimes, and maybe this is you, oftentimes, when, when people are listening to pastors and we can just, you, you hear words like politics, what many people are in the pews are trying to do is, okay, so is she Republican or is she Democrat? You see, and they're looking for very particular words that we say, very particular ideas that we have, and it's confusing because I don't exist in either. See, I believe that, that Jesus' kingdom is actually completely an alternative path. It's different. It doesn't, it's, it confounds, it confuses the left and right. And it is confusing. And so when I began preaching during the, the election cycle, you know, I had people from one direction say, boy, you sound like a socialist. You sound really liberal to me. I'm out. I can't do this. And then I, then I had people on the other side saying to me, you didn't speak up enough. You didn't speak truth power to enough. I'm out. What else people on both sides? A few more hundred. And you know, this kind of just went on and on and on and on. And I want to tell you that my heart is grieved, not because of my ego, but I, I, I wish I could tell you I have zero ego, but we all do, okay? We do. We all do, and it was painful. But actually what grieved me more than just that, it, it hurt personally, but what grieved me more than that was the witness. We looked a lot like a dysfunctional family at times. And I wondered often, as the world was watching a lot of this chaos, peering in, what did they see? And I just wonder, what moments are we missing because I actually think that we're living in a very particular time and, and this, 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 these divides, these uh, polarizations that we're seeing, it's probably gonna get worse. But what if the church got better? What if the church 
declared no more. We are putting our stake in the ground, not on the right or the left, but we are putting our stake on the ground on a way that doesn't even exist with any category of this world. And we are going to live radically different, that we are going to be agents of healing, agents of reconciliation, agents of God's grace, and that we are gonna declare a different path. And my goodness, what if then revival broke loose? Call me a prisoner of hope, but I think it's possible. And I'm praying for that because something's at stake here. It's not just about doing good deeds, but it's in our moment by moment, minute by minute, second by second, in the morning when we wake up, God, let me be an agent of reconciliation from the moment that my feet hit the ground. Let me embody the way of Jesus, of salt and light in this world, and that when we gather together, that we would be using our gifts to edify and bring one another up, so that way when we step out these doors, that we are impelled and propelled and empowered and emboldened by the spirit of the living God to display God's radiance in this world. Can you imagine it with me? 10 years ago, I'm going really long. I'm gonna close with this story. 10 years ago, when my son was 10 months old, we were gifted a trip to go to Hawaii. And it was a dream, oh, could not wait. We knew that it was crazy taking a 10 month old to Hawaii. At the time we lived in Chicago. So the time change was something like six hours. Now anyone who's been around a 10 month old, you can't just say to them, hey, we're gonna have a time change, and so I'm just gonna need to, you to stay up a little bit later, and I just need you to sleep in. They don't, they don't operate like that. And so they're really long, I think it was an eight hour plane flight, they're really long plane flight. I had, oh my goodness, I was a nervous first time mom, really nervous. I had a bag of trips, I had two suitcases of toys and books and snacks, because I was determined that he was not gonna cry, and he cried the whole way. It got to the point that I was just sweating. I was like, okay, I'm just not gonna make eye contact with anyone on this plane because if I do, I know that they're gonna give me the dirtiest look in the world. And we get off the plane, and we got off the plane, it was raining, and it was cloudy, and, and we, we got to our Airbnb, and uh, there were just, you know, it wasn't exactly what I thought it was gonna be at first. It was raining, it was cloudy, and it was just kind of gross. I thought, man, this is not Hawaii. And we go to bed, and I'm so tired. We're just on this plane flight. We finally get to bed. And there was another Airbnb just around the corner. I started having a party. And it started off just like this really faint, like, I thought, okay, I can do this, I can do this, I can just I fall asleep. It just started to get louder, like, and like, I mean, by four in the morning, I mean, there was just a full on party happening and I didn't sleep a wink. And so by the time maybe my eyes started to get a little bit tired, I don't know, it was like two, three, four in the morning or something, Caleb, my 10-month-old, wakes up. And he's laughing, and he had the best night's sleep ever. And Jeff and I are like, oh, this is terrible. So we didn't know what to do, so we put him in our backpack, and we decided to take for a walk to the beach. And you know what? Sometimes that can be a piece of work to my husband. He's saying, he's watching right now, and he's saying, amen, amen. So we're walking along the beach, and I'm just saying, oh, why did we come? This was such a mistake. This is gonna be a miserable week. This is gonna be the worst vacation ever. This is not what I imagined a Hawaii vacation to be. How are we going to do this? And I'm complaining, complaining, complaining. And he's, he's, as he always does, he's lovingly holding space for me and being empathetic and being so kind. And we're walking and eventually as we're walking, the horizon begins to glow. And hardly a cloud in the air. And the horizon begins to glow and the sun just begins to kiss just a little bit. 
And I knew it was the sun. It wasn't, it wasn't fully risen, but it was beginning to rise. It was beginning to break forth. And I saw it and I tasted it. And I, I looked around and I just, you know, the, the waves were glistening of diamonds and, and the sky was blue and orange and all these beautiful colors. And I saw the palm trees and I looked down and I, I saw the sand and I saw the waves. And my, my disposition, my demeanor changed because I tasted, I saw Hawaii. And I knew that we were there, that we were in Hawaii and I saw something beautiful. And you see, here's the thing. Jesus and the faithfulness of King Jesus, of what God has done in Jesus and the life, the teachings, the resurrections, the fulfillment of all of history, the ascension to the throne where he now reigns. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and it is bursting forth. It is kissing the horizon. It's in this, what scholars call this already but not yet space. Already God has done something in Jesus and has poured out God's blessings upon God's people. And not yet, not yet is the new heaven and the new earth here. Already we are living out in the the blessings, but someday there will be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more murder, there will be no more strife, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more Alzheimer's, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more pain. There will be no more political divides. Someday that is going to be the world and the reality that we live in as sons and daughters of the resurrection. And so we live in this in between. The sun is kissing the horizon. And you see, we are God's kingdom people. We're part of this kingdom. We're part of this radiant kingdom that has been inaugurated, that is kissing the horizon. And the question that I have for you and for us is do the people know that? Do they see? Do they experience it? Do they taste it? Do they feel it when they're around us? And when they're around us, they think, whoa, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Dear ones, where will we live? Are we going to live into this already but not yet space and look towards the sun that is fully risen on the horizon radiant? And are we going to allow that future vision to inform our present, which by the way is what Jesus is doing and declaring in the Sermon on the Mount? Are we gonna live in that way that the world looks in and says, wow, I wanna be a part of that. Would you pray with me? wherever you are, even if you're on a walk listening to a podcast, if you're in your family room, would you pray with me and just simply lift your hands up with your palms up. We're just gonna together as the church, of those who are leading in the church in North America, we're gonna recommend, we're gonna pray for revival and we're gonna say, yes, God. Yes, God, we're in. It's like when, when Moses came down with the law and they said, yes, God, we're in, and then Jesus came and he gives us a sermon on the mountain, they said, yes, God, we're gonna say, yes, God, we're in. We want it. So I just, I'm gonna invite you, I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna invite you to repeat after me simply by saying, yes, God, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, okay. God, we offer up ourselves to you, and we believe in the words that you have for us. We, we believe that we can be like the stars in the sky and shine radiantly and bright. 
We believe that we can be holy. Would you say yes, Lord, with me? Yes, Lord. And so God, we pray that you would take our moment by moment, minute by minute, and that you would have your way in us. Let's say yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. So God, you can have my future. Yes, Lord. God, you can have the church. Yes, Lord. God, you can have us, and may we live in your full power. Yes, Lord. Have your way in us. And God, may we be a radiant and holy people living in such a way that revival would break loose, that the world would stop in their tracks and that they would fall to their knees and that they would behold Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that something magnificent that we can't even imagine would happen in this world. Let's say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We believe. Have your way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's radiant people said, amen. 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 May the Lord bless you.